Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thanks for joining us in this ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of the mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Mary Ankley Thermos. I'm Director of Medication Safety and Quality at ASHP, and I'm joined by Deb Wagner, who is a Clinical Professor of Pharmacy and Anesthesiology for the University of Michigan College of Pharmacy and Michigan Medical School, and Rachel Myers, who is a clinical professor at the Ernest Mario School of Pharmacy at Rutgers University and a pediatric clinical pharmacist at Cooperman Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, New Jersey. Today, we'll be talking about their work and perspectives on the ASHP Standardized for Safety Initiative. This episode is sponsored by Baxter Healthcare Corporation. This podcast is for informational purposes and not approved for continuing education credit. Additional activities on this topic are available at ASHP. Thanks for joining us today and let's get started. First, it would be great to start with a history of the Standardized for Safety Project from your perspective and why it was begun. Deb, I'll start with you. Thanks, Marianne, and welcome everyone to this podcast. It's important, I think, for folks to realize that this whole initiative really goes back over almost 20 years now. It really began back in the early 2000s with the National Patient Safety Goals, uh, which really put out a call to providers to standardize concentrations available and to also reduce the number of concentrations available. This worked to some degree, but Each facility really determined what they would use on their own accord, and it wasn't really standardized across the country by any means. Following that, the 2008 ASHP IV Summit took place with really wanting to look at preventing harm and death from IV medication errors. They focused primarily on three things, lack of standardization and good design for IV medications, a lack of shared accountability for safety among members of different disciplines, and then those high-volume, high-demand environments where safety could be sacrificed for other priorities. And this really was in a move to really move towards more high reliability in terms of medication administration. Well, after that, it wasn't until 2015 that the FDA worked with ASHP to really address looking at how could we create a platform for nationalizing standardization that would include pharmacies, the FDA, ISMP, vendors, et cetera. And so it's been now a kind of a longitudinal process looking at different products, starting with compounded oral solutions and continuous infusions for patients who are adult patients. And now we have actually, we're going back to really look at the IV push medications, the PCA, the epidurals, et cetera. Really, at this same time this happened, Michigan Medicine uh, worked with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan with the Michigan Pediatric Safety Collaborative to develop what was really the first attempt in the United States to standardize compounded oral liquids. Part of the reason we did this is we found issue with many of our pediatric patients who would be discharged from the hospital on one concentration of an oral medication that we made, and they would go up to Northern Michigan, say, and then they would go to a pharmacy there who would use a totally different compounded concentration. And we actually had serious safety events that happened with baclofen. 
suspensions with different concentrations. So I think all of those pieces coming together, as well as in uh, 2018, the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation uh, held a whole meeting on perioperative medication safety that endorsed this initiative. And I think really, you know, they came up with four strategies, really. And uh, one was standardization, one was technology, uh, one was culture, and one was pharmacy. So anesthesia, who uses a lot of high-risk, high medications, uh, really bought into the Standardized for Safety initiative and really embellished pharmacy participation with them, which I think is really a key as well. Thanks a lot, Deb. I think you really highlighted the big reason why we're doing all this, and that's patient safety. You know, it's the advantage of standardizing concentrations, and we know that standardization helps increase safety. But why should a hospital consider changing? Can we delve in a little bit more, in a little more detail? Why should a hospital consider changing concentrations to match the S4S concentrations? Rachel, I'm going to throw that one to you. Sure. Thanks. So there's several reasons why hospitals should consider adopting the S4S standard concentrations. One of them would have to do with just the safety in transferring patients between institutions. Um, this is something we frequently do where we send uh, patients on to institutions which can provide a higher level of care. And so it makes it much safer if they are using the same concentrations that we are. The other advantage is just in terms of standardizing across health systems so that you can have your EMRs match across the health systems and also implementing smart infusion pumps. So if everyone is using the same concentrations, those smart infusion pumps can be built with those concentrations and they can be monitored from a system. So in my perspective, my background is in pediatrics. So we have several hospitals in our health system, which don't they don't do a lot of pediatrics, you know, just a little bit maybe in their emergency rooms. Um, and so it's not really their specialty, but this way they have access to the standard uh, concentrations. Those can be built in their pumps easily. And so that they that can help them to provide a similar level of quality care and safe care as some of the bigger institutions that are more used to dealing with pediatric patients. Deb, do you have anything you'd like to add to that? You know, I think Rachel made a, a really good point talking about infusion devices. And I would tag on to that, that one of the other advantages of standardization is that these infusion devices, their libraries have a, a limited capacity, right? So there's only so much space. And so by standardizing, you also are able to make everything fit into a standard library without having to go outside of the library and say, run volume over time, which we know is inherently unsafe. I think, you know, in 2020, AHRQ actually published paper on looking at medication errors and deaths and found that 38% of their errors were actually due to dosing errors. So the more that we can force people into a standardized library, we can really, I think, attack, which is really, I think, the key, is attack that administration phase where we know that the majority of medications errors occur and we really leave nursing at the bedside. I think tied in with that is that if we can get to a national standardized concentration, we have an increased likelihood that industry or either commercial or 503B agencies can actually make these solutions for us. Because I think as time goes on here, it's going to become even more critical with USP 800 
in terms of what people can do within their own facility for compounding and dating. And that's really going to put constraints on health systems. And so by being able to standardize, this allows more time for industry to really look at what do they need to make for us so that we can be safe in administration and also buy these things commercially. This is an excellent point, Deb. I know that um, since I've taken over this project at ASHP, I've had industry contact me. Kind of interesting. Rachel, yeah, you want to? Yeah, sorry, I just wanted to tack on to that. So a couple of points that Deb brought up. So first of all, I just have witnessed firsthand with our nurses at my hospital how much they love our um, smart infusion pumps and how much they've come to really rely on the guardrails that are built in there. And so if if a physician wanted to try to order something that was non-standard and wasn't in the pump, um, they're actually my best line of defense right now because they do not want to do anything that's not in the pump. So that helps. And then just again, the comments about industry. So in pediatrics, we do far too much compounding. Um, We have much less availability. Um, Actually, pretty much nothing is available for standard concentrations um, in terms of continuous infusions in pediatrics because we really need things in syringes um, because we use syringe pumps. And so the hope, as as Deb said, is that at least if we have these standards that we really need, maybe we can send that message to industry that that we, we need these for pediatrics because, again, the, the risk in compounding of calculation errors, of mixing errors is too high. And so it's time that we had some of this made commercially. You know, that reminds me, Rachel, of a time probably, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years ago. And the only heparin solutions that we had available in the hospital were the two unit per ml bags. And we use one unit per ml for the pediatric, for our cardiac kids. And, you know, there was none available. And so, again, high risk, high alert medications. We're compounding it usually in an OR situation. And we worked with vendors to actually make that available. So there is, you know, by having that collaboration, you can affect change that improves what we need for pediatrics, which I think is really lacking as well. And I would just throw in on the other side is that with post-COVID, we have a severe shortage of all kinds of medical staff within the institution. But with nurses, we have so many new nurses that need to be trained. And uh, by having standardization really makes it, I think, a lot easier to train a nursing staff that are moving between and amongst different patient care areas or between hospitals or health systems that if everything was standardized, think how easy it would be for them to come in and say, oh, I use this at the other hospital and you have the same concentration. I don't have to really, I know what I'm doing here. So I think that's another point, especially after COVID that's really come to light. Yeah, that that actually may have been even before because physicians travel from hospital to hospital and sometimes system to system. And, and it makes it easier also on the ordering end, which is another high administration ordering, the two high ends of where medication errors <laughs> occur. So you raised pediatrics. And I think, Rachel, you gave us a lot of information why it's at, at, there's an advantage there. Is there anything else within that realm there? Yeah, I think just in pediatrics, there's so many advantages because for a lot of the drugs, we actually need multiple concentrations because in pediatrics, of course, we're often dealing with the smallest premature infants all the way up to big teenagers. So when we worked as a group to standardize the continuous infusions, we really tried our best to minimize the number of concentrations that we were going to recommend. But again, there were instances where we needed two or three just because of dosing and weight differences. But again, I think it just 
emphasizes how much safer it is if all of our hospitals are using those same, for example, three concentrations. So that, again, between like we said before, transferring between institutions is safer, our smart infusion pumps are safer, and again, just that incentive to industry. So I just we have two to three times more concentrations than the adults do. So I think it just emphasizes the need for standardization even more because two to three times more need. Yeah. So you both uh, kind of mentioned working on the expert panel and one of the goals was to limit it to one or two to three at the most. Can you describe other considerations and some of those challenges that the expert panels dealt with when developing these list of standard concentrations? Deb, I'll start with you. Sure. I think probably number one on my list would be trying to avoid that tenfold differences in concentration. All right. It's it's really hard to get around sometimes, especially when you look at pediatrics and the neonatology population as well. So really trying to minimize that as much as we could. It's not always 100% possible to do that. Sometimes you really, like Rachel said, you have to really think in these kids about what's the volume of the priming of the line? What's the rate have to run at? What are the limitations of the rate the pump can actually run? And sometimes we forget, I think a key point really in my mind is that what is the titration dose of BOLA or not, or an infusion, for instance? So say, for instance, you have a kid who weighs 15 kilos and you have a 20 mic per ml and 100 mic per ml concentration of hydromorphone. So you say, okay, well, maybe do we need both of those? Well, maybe, maybe not. But then you say, well, what's the titration dose? And if the titration dose is something like two mics, it's 0.1 ml, does that fit with what your infusion devices can deliver? So sometimes you really, it's a really, with pediatrics, you really have to think a lot more about what is actually being administered to the patient. And then second of all, I think, does your institution allow bolusing off the pump? Because uh, we just recently have moved into that in our intensive care pediatric areas, but we don't even do it in our adults. So we bolus, you know, we bolus off hand administration, not off the pump. So all of those become factors when you look at these, you know, standardizations, as well as, are you talking about in pediatrics, are you talking about mics per kilo per minute or milligrams per hour or mls per hour and all those things have to really be taken into account so you have consistency across the playing field especially when rachel mentioned earlier this transition from like an or to the icu or back and forth or the ed or whatever so that those match when people are moving through a system rachel you want to add anything to that Yeah, I did want to say that when we were developing the concentrations for pediatrics, we considered, um, as Deb said, how low and how slow can the pump go? Most syringe pumps, at least ones I'm familiar with, we kind of trust them down to about 0.1 mils an hour. So we wanted to make sure that the smallest patient that could use that drug, because there's certain drugs you just would never use in that size patient, but the smallest patient that would use that drug 
that the concentrations we were providing would actually be deliverable by that pump. So that was something we really took seriously. The other thing we tried very hard to do was to match the concentration units to the dosing units. So if we're dosing in mics per kilo, we're making sure that the concentration is in mics per ml. If we're dosing for migs per kilo per hour, we're making sure that the concentration is in migs per ml. Now there's some drugs like becuronium I'm thinking of off the top of my head where there's a lot of different practices in this country. And even if you look in standard drug references, you'll see mics per kilo per hour and you'll see mix per kilo per hour. And so there's a recognition also that we should really be trying to standardize that. And so we were hoping that that might be a next step in the future is to standardize some of these dosing with the way that we dose these medications. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I can add from the adult, having been an adult ICU, you know, a lot of those people get very fluid overloaded. And so that was a lot of consideration as well as the access with this peripheral central and extravasation and phlebitis and those kind of things. So there was a lot, I think what you're both saying that was considered by these panels wasn't easy. Go ahead, Rachel. Yeah, I just have one more thing to add. And, and I wanted to mention that you know, we don't intend that these concentrations are going to meet the needs for 100% of patients in 100% of institutions. So we recognize that there may be an institution based on their particular population, they, they may need something that isn't quite what we have. But we hope that our concentrations will meet the needs of most patients, and that's why that they should be adopted. Absolutely. We kind of had that, what we call the 80-20 rule. At least 80% of the population could do that. Let's pivot a little bit. So what would you recommend or important considerations you would suggest to a member or an organization to implement these standardized for safety concentrations in their institution? Yeah, sure. This is Rachel. Um, I would say that you have to have a meeting with your key stakeholders. So obviously you're going to want to get, you know, your pharmacy department leadership on board and then discuss, you know, with the leadership from the physician side and the nursing side, just to make sure that they are on board with the idea and start introducing the idea of we need to move to these concentrations, start feeling them out. I was helped in my particular instance in that our health system said, you will standardize. And we had, we were being forced to standardize across our system. So it kind of helped that I had that backing from our health system. And, you know, I had a conversation with one physician who is not happy with losing some concentrations that she was very comfortable with, had used in her very long career for a very long time, didn't feel like these new concentrations were going to meet her needs. And so we discussed it and, and we ended with, you know what, let's just give these a try. And, you know, if there's you feel that it's not meeting the needs, then then let's talk. And that conversation I had with her was probably three or four years ago. And, and I haven't heard any requests to change them yet. So <laughs> usually it works out, but that's the hardest part, I, I feel like, is a lot of practitioners, um, physicians and nurses are very comfortable with their concentrations that they've been used to using. And um, that can be a tough hurdle to jump over. But again, having that institutional support is, is really important. Deb, anything you want to add? Yeah, I, I totally agree with everything Rachel has said. One of the things we did at Michigan, because I work a lot in the OR perioperative space, is we actually created an anesthesia pharmacy task force. And this task force really has gone after tackling, really looking at reducing any type of medication IV-wise that anesthesia would have to compound on site, you know, ready to use. Like where could we get them? Could we outsource them? Could pharmacy make them ahead? What was the stability data? 
you know, how would we go about this? And, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges is besides getting all the stakeholders aligned uh, to participate is really consensus based on little evidence of data. And so there's the perception, I say the perception versus reality. Well, this works better because this is what I've always used, but no, I want this over here. Um, For instance, I could tell you back in 20, actually before the whole initiative started back in 2011 uh, in Michigan, we had 18 different epidural concentrations for people to choose from, right? So some were 0.1 bupivacaine, some were 0.125 bupivacaine, 18, and we were able to get consolidation down from 18 to eight and reduce the impact of where errors on ordering could occur by reducing this variability. So I think really trying to get consensus and then also involve getting the key players and particularly having nursing at the table uh, and whether or not you have a pediatric medication safety committee that can go through and work through some of these dynamics of what works for each different unit and having, you know, the PEDS ICU, the cardiothoracic, the neonatology group all participate, I think is is really important to get that buy-in because those are a lot more challenging than say the greater than 50 kilo group, right? With an adult. So I think of it kind of like going to a cardiac arrest, everybody gets a milligram of epi, right? And then the adults, but in a PEDS, no, that's not so true. So really working to get everybody saying, yeah, why we're going to do this. And then also, I think, continuous feedback on progress that people have made in terms of, you know, looking at those medication errors and seeing, have you seen a reduction in those medication reported errors? So I'm going to ask a question just so I'm clear. And that's, I've heard a number of stakeholders. So we've talked about anesthesiologists, Physicians, I imagine your critical care physicians and other physicians, ICU critical care nurses, administration, because they need to be behind you. Is, is there anyone anywhere else? I mean, do you go to the ER? Do you go to the ambulance drivers who may be at starting something? Do, do we miss any of the stakeholders that maybe organizations should consider? Well, I work a lot with the EMS providers and our state quality uh, task force for EMS for drug medication administration protocols. And we really try to align those because we know patients are being transported. We in Michigan anyways have a medical intensive care transport unit as well as our helicopter transport that are really transporting critical care. A lot of times neonatal, you know, neonates to us. And so we've really tried to standardize those with and amongst those. But I think that is an opportunity I see with the Standardized for Safety initiative, because there's many national EMS providers and aeromedical associations that probably are, you know, on the lower end of being brought into this fold, so to speak. So I think that that is, Marianne, is a really great observation. I think that that's an area we may not have totally engaged. Yeah. And I might even say on the other end, so that's coming into the hospital, but also going out of the hospital to home infusion kind of places too, that may do a dobutamine at home and completely change things. You know, that's trained. Somebody might've been trained in the hospital to do this and it's different when you go home. So that's another opportunity to transition to care. 
I just wanted to also add, we've kind of focused on the IV standards, but there's also the oral uh, compounded liquid standards. So the other key stakeholder with that would be our community pharmacy partners and making sure that they're aware because we do, we still do so much oral compounding in pediatrics and making sure that they're compounding the same concentration. Um, I have had been involved with an error where we sent a patient home on a particular concentration and I don't know what happened along the way, but the patient had to be readmitted about a month later. And it turns out they were not getting the same concentration from their compounding pharmacy. And so again, if if we're all on the same page and everybody's using the same concentration, hopefully we can um, at least reduce uh, the number of those errors that occur. Yeah, these are all, all great examples. So staying on the implementation theme, do you guys have any tips for un- getting started or important keys for success? We kind of mentioned some of them, you know, getting your administration behind you, but, but uh, you know, is it persistence? <laughs> what is it to, to kind of get this to really happen? I might say just again, like I said, I I had a lot of success having my health system behind me. So my health system administration and also just sort of having driving factors always helps. Um, So my health system is currently in the middle of converting to a new EMR system. And so that desire to make the build for the EMR the same for all the hospitals was a big driver in standardizing our concentrations because that way we didn't have to build different concentrations of all these medications for each individual hospital. So that sort of helped to to drive our standardization priorities. And also, like I said before, just gave me a standing foothold with physicians in, in explaining why it was necessary. Nothing like opportunity, right? Yeah. <laughs> Deb, go ahead. Yeah, I think aligned with that is also many institutions are moving towards integration between their computer pharmacy order entry system and interoperability type with infusion devices. And in order for those two to talk to each other and to be integrated, they need to be talking the same language. And so it really, again, drives towards that. And that's more like the mics per kilo or is it mils per hour or what are we talking about? Those have to be aligned or you're going to fail at that implementation uh, with trying to do that. So that really ties into that, the dosing units, the dosing, how it's set up so that that can function. And I think sometimes I think we put a false sense. I think it's important to put up you know, make people understand. People think barcode administration at the bedside is the, you know, means to an end, that that fixes all the issue with errors at the bedside administration. But a recent LeapFrog uh, survey that just came out, I think in 2020, actually, showed that only about 30% of hospitals meet all of the four criteria for barcode medication administration. So there's a lot of workarounds that go around at the bedside, especially when we talk about these high-risk medications, high-intensity areas like the ICU or the OR, uh, where people are under pressure and things are happening very quickly, that you add that in, it really increases that risk. So I think highlighting those, those issues to the stakeholders and really trying to say, like I think Rachel or you said earlier, is you know we don't have to be a hundred percent, right? But can we get to eighty percent standard and minimize that custom type work that we want to do? I throw in another. I'll throw in another example. But we have a shortage right now of twenty three point four percent sodium chloride, right? 
So we use that to make many different concentrations of sodium chloride for our neonatal population, right? So you can't, they're not commercially available. But then it's like, well, how many do you need? Because now we have a high-risk, high-alert solution that's not readily available. We're having to change around concentrations, restrict concentrations. And then you have the poor pharmacy technician who's trying to make all these things, and we're changing things on the fly. And it's just a setup for a mistake to happen, I think. Terrific. Just great, great points. Uh, That standardization is really akin to quality, decreasing errors, important in transitions of care, in care for the littlest patients to the oldest patients. So many, many great points today. I really appreciate it. That's all the time we have. I want to thank Drs. Wagner's Doctors Wagner and Myers for joining us today for this great discussion. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and and be sure to subscribe to the ASHB podcast through your favorite podcast provider. And I would encourage anyone listening to access the Standardized for Safety website. You can obtain a lot of information, review the standards that are currently available, as well as there is a checklist where you can see how well your institution aligns. That is a site that's public and open to everyone. So thank you again, Drs. Wagner and Myers. Great session today. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.